And then I watched uh, El Dorado. Speaking of hawks, oh, too, yeah. I rewatched that. Getting the getting the Gorin mood, you know. Yeah, dude. You know, <laughs> Wayne and Gorin. So I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna watch rewatch El Dorado. You know. <laughs> and I honestly, you probably saw my letterbox, but I was just like looking back on it. I was like, really, this entire movie is just these two big tough guys constantly being like, ow, and like. <laughs> like that, half the movie is, is where God is yeah. just like Mitchum, like being like, oh my guts, <laughs> you know, it's a tummy ache movie, you know. I love that. And Wayne just being like, my wrist, ah, like my back, ah. Jimmy Cobb. Oh God, dude, yeah, I fucking love it. I was trying to figure out his hair. I was trying to figure out his hair, right? Because in that movie, which is early on for James Con, very early, yes. He takes that hat off, and and he's got, like, major comb-over going on there. Like, his hair in that movie, it's, like, it's it's looking bad, you know? But then, as, like, a, a slightly older man, he's got the fro going, you yeah. know? I mean, that had to be some early plug work or something. Because oh, yeah. he looks like... He's he's doing everything he can to hide the fact that he's, he's losing his hair. He's the kind of guy yeah, who would man. go to great lengths to... Uh, you know, avoid that. Yeah. Cause, right. Cause, I always assumed he was like a plug guy, you know, or his just like really good so pieces, you know, I guess really yeah. good pieces. Yeah. Could You're be. Rich, I like, mean, if you get the fro piece, it is kind of like a helmet. You could just sort of wear, you know, the yeah. big curly hair that he had. <laughs> but I swear to God, this time around, I really was like, that man's got, he's losing yeah. all his damn hair Call and he's 20, out. you know? You guys know, as a bald man, I'm You've I'm always hypersensitive eye, to dude. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know like, all the tricks. Dude, I love the yeah, like the bald man's auteurism or whatever. <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, dude. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier, a gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. That's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts. And with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us here picks a theme for the week, and then the other two pick films that are in reaction to that theme. Sometimes they meet the topic. Sometimes they (laughs) buck up against the topic a little bit. And, you know, to be honest, sometimes it seems like they're openly antagonistic (laughs) towards the topic. Um, Now, it was my turn to pick said topic this week and it was all sort of inspired by a visit we took to the hospital last week and you know we we consulted with the physicians we told them about our troubles and everything that's been going on you know you know the gauntlet may seem like this utopia but we all got our own stuff going on (laughs) there are there are professional woes there's just this and that and the other and you know so i talked to the doctor and he's like hey you know what take a chill pill it's like you know watching uh pitch it pong movies he's like why don't i'm gonna prescribe you a a chill pill 
So I was like, okay, okay, I'll take a chill pill. Maybe we should take a look at some relaxing movies. But I guess, you know, I got to always remember, and it's, it's an important thing, is that, you know, when you're prescribed medicine, you should take the side effects into consideration. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I will say that the, there were, it's an interesting double feature this week. <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I asked for some films that I did leave it open to interpretation. So maybe I, 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 I uh, put myself in a corner here, but I will say, you know, the idea, the idea was to have films that were sort of designed to be relaxing, things that could calm us down and, you know, t- take us down a little bit. And, um, you know, one of those films, certainly, certainly I would say, uh, is that, um, the other one d- did not have that intended effect on me. Uh, I'll just come out of the gate right away and uh, announce that the the medicine uh, had a little bit of a, a little more of a, an irritating effect on the old rye guy here. Um, but so you know, let's let's just like take a look at these films and let's see if we can figure out um, what might be going on here. So I'm gonna actually, you know, normally we we do the earlier of the two films first, but you know, I'm gonna start with the movie that in my mind was was the prompt was was what i was asking for um so marsh why don't you tell us a little bit about um the delightful little relaxing experience you provided us this week well you know like we've talked about in the past uh about andy having certain phases that he's gone through on the podcast i think we can safely say that i am currently in my train phase (laughs) you know uh i keep coming back to trains and i did it once again there's something in the air you know over east palestine ohio especially yeah (laughs) an airborne toxic event for sure we got trains on the brain (laughs) and yeah uh this was really one of the first films that came to mind when I thought about relaxing films and, and for a couple of reasons, I think like formally it's a relaxing film, but I think it also um, is sort of about that, you know, about sort of like humdrum activity and it's kind of just like a relaxing thing all around. Uh, And that film is Jean-Pierre Guerin's Routine Pleasures from 1986. This is... I guess, a documentary, perhaps an essay film. I suppose most people would label it. And it is primarily about Guerin's fascination with the Pacific Beach Railroaders Club in Del Mar, California. And Guerin, of course, moved to the U.S. in 1975 after breaking up with Godard, and he taught at UCSD uh, and and lived there. And so this film is also about Guerin becoming American, you know, in a sense, and him sort of ruminating on that journey from radical Marxist French student to, uh, you know, professor in Southern California in this sleepy town, you know, Uh, and playing sort of foil to all of the activity going on is Manny Farber, his colleague and mentor, the film critic, professor, and painter. Uh, And Guerin uses Farber to, yeah, sort of 
I don't know, have a rhetorical discussion with himself over the course of the film about the film itself, about what he's trying to do. It's very much uh, a film that documents itself, you know, in its making. But really, why it's so relaxing is that it is primarily shots of just like these old dudes playing with an incredible model train set. And Gurren is is very fascinated by them, and so am I. And it's just a very comforting experience. And he's sort of like, you know, aping, you know, in his mind. And I think, you know, it has that intended effect. He's like going for like a Hawks and Wellman hangout film, you know, a 30s hangout film with his sort of approach to these guys. But it evolves a little bit as well. Uh, it's got really, really nice cinematography by Babette Mangolt, who we have seen previously on this pod for shooting News From Home because she was a big time collaborator oh, wow. with Ackerman and uh, Yvonne Rainier and a bunch of other people. But she worked, uh, she's French, but she worked primarily in the US. And so she uh, shot this film and it looks fucking great uh, throughout, you know, and it, it's got a lot of, yeah, I don't know. It's just, to me, it's it's like, yeah, it's very, very relaxing, very comforting, and also, you know, thought-provoking as well. That is uh, routine pleasures. We'll get into it. Thank you. Thank you very much. It um, it did calm me down. It was, uh, <laughs> it was very relaxing. Um, I even, you know, I, I watched both of these movies a while ago, um, just because it was a bit, a bit of a loaded week. But I did pop it back on today, uh, just to have on in the background while I was working. And, and it was fun hearing Gurin's voice. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a special thing. I actually almost picked it for train week. So it's funny that it, it found itself yes. right, right back here. Train <laughs> very, era continued. Very soon after. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the other film we have... I would almost say is, you know, pretty routine and personally without very many pleasures. Um, but <laughs> let, let's hear let's hear the angle, Andy. I've been looking forward to this all week. I think I maybe have an idea of what you were getting at. Um, still a bit mysterious for a guy like me. So so tell us a little bit about what, what you picked. All right. Look, look, look. Okay. You know, in my I'm not even going to say defense. I don't feel I need to defend myself here. But I'm just going to say, you, and you, you, you said it in your intro, you said interpret it as you will. When you said relaxing cinema, you said interpret it as you will. So for me, uh, I sit there and and often when I'm like stressed or when I'm, you know, needing to just kind of unwind uh, I like a little kind of mindless action, but a particular kind of action, you know? For me, the the dull roar of, of gunshots or car engines revving can sometimes be almost like a, a white noise machine in the background. So I, I would also, you know, preface it with, with, you know, that the action can't be uh, very high stakes, you know, it can't be an action movie about saving the world because that isn't very relaxing. You know, for me, it's got to be a kind of uh, like a little bit more of a lazy action vibe. Not really about, you know, um, 
the world being in peril, but more often than not, just something that, you know, there's a, there's a, a person on a mission and, and through the intermediary of some very routine action, uh, they're going to fix it. They're going to solve it. You know, they're going to save the day. And I would say in that regard, look, uh, the film that I chose, the stakes couldn't be any lower, really, <laughs> if you think about it. You know? uh, and that to me is pretty chill, pretty relaxing, you know. Uh, beyond that, I do recall recently, you know, the film had come up in conversation. And, uh, you know, both you and Marsh, I know, hadn't seen it. You'd referenced it. So for me, I thought, you know what? If I'm going to chill out, if I'm going to relax, I need an old man uh, with a gun sort of plodding through uh, a very forgettable action plot. That's, that's the vibe that I was going for. And beyond that, uh, building on that, I would also say that, you know, it's a return of sorts for us on the pod. Uh, so without all, without any other further ado, I'll just bring it out. Uh, the film that I chose is from 1975, directed by Douglas Hickox, Brannigan, starring John Wayne, the Duke. Uh, a follow-up of sorts to a film we discussed on the podcast way back when, uh, McHugh. Uh, set in Seattle for our, our Seattle week. Now, Brannigan stars the Duke as a puff-as-nails Chicago cop, Jim Brannigan. Uh, and Brannigan, at the start of the film, is, is ushered off to London to uh, extradite John Vernon, who plays uh, Larkin, a, a, I would say, what, what I understood to be a very kind of low-level mob guy who doesn't really seem to be in uh, to too much bad stuff. But, but anyway, he's got to go to London to bring him back. Setting up, of course, a kind of fish-out-of-water situation where the big, shouldered, uh, rough-around-the-edges Chicago cop is now going to get uh, his philosophies tested against uh, Richard Attenborough who plays a, a sort of London police commissioner at Scotland Yard. And of course, I'm sure you can imagine where it goes from here. The Duke is going to impress everyone, ruffle some feathers in London in jolly old, and ultimately get his man. Uh, there's a few other things in there. It's actually kind of, I think, a, a sort of overly plotted film, uh, in spite of what it is. Um, but yeah, you know... It's kind of also just the Duke on vacation, really the kind of the kind of vibe that is also pretty chill to me. You know, we've got uh, the Duke in London. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's not routine pleasures, that's for sure. But on a certain level, it is for me a very routine pleasure. So that is the film that I brought. And I think we're actually going to have some fun talking about it. Because is it a great movie? No. But I think it's kind of a funny movie. And it's uh, it's certainly, as Marsh pointed out to me in text, um, you know, building the case that that we are a, a late Wayne podcast. <laughs> that that our, uh, one of our obsessions is going to be the 
the final years of the Duke's long and illustrious <laughs> career of like 150 movies, and we're going to focus on like the final 10 or 15. I just love old, slow, uh, broken down, one lung John Wayne. You know, that you again want to talk about relaxing. I mean, he is basically sleepwalking he through does not this movie. Break a sweat. Oh yeah, yeah. And, no. and, and for me, no. hey, that's pretty goddamn chill if you think about it. So that's the movie that I brought, Branigan. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> well, I can't share your affection. I can't say I share your affection for Late Wayne. Um, I, I, you know, and I, I think that it's funny because you both did bring up the first thing I was going to mention, which is this unique sense of deja vu with uh, the films. One being an immediate deja vu, just having spent some time on some trains as of late. Um, we've all been a bit train pilled, and I keep thinking about the episode after seeing everything that's going on in the news. This is just like unbelievable. I, you know, we've talked about the Gauntlet Curse before. That um, you know, we we were responsible for killing Angela Lansbury, and we were also responsible for derailing this train. Yeah, it's kind of outrageous and like a little bit frightening because <laughs> those are some pretty bad things to have to have happened uh, potentially because of us. Fred um, Ward, but too. then yeah, Fred Ward as well. Fred Ward, yes, yes, and yes, Godard really curse. too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. There's quite a bit. Um, <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll talk about the gauntlet curse in, in greater detail. On you know, that's also episode. why I chose Bran again because I felt it was very safe. They're all dead. The Duke's long dead. Attenborough's dead. You know, I knew picking this, we weren't yeah. cursing anybody. Hickok's dead. You know, like uh, I, I I guess in spite of all that discussion, I I wanted to pick something that I knew we couldn't cause any more trouble with. Right. Right. Um, yeah, except my blood pressure, maybe. But the <laughs> Which is a very relaxing thing for me, knowing that you're getting worked up. So Yeah. <laughs> well, so but then yes, of course, obviously the McHugh connection. Um, it seems like all the writing on Brannigan like brings up McHugh, all the writing on McHugh brings up Brannigan. I mean, these are both films that were late Wayne Dirty Harry vehicles, right? They were trying to see, like, can we do Dirty Harry with John Wayne? And both films are resounding no in terms <laughs> of, like, does does he have what Clint has? Does he have, like, that energy and that edge? Yeah, I mean, he was struggling against it. I mean, I think we talked about it a little bit on the McHugh uh, episode, but, I mean, he was offered the role of Dirty Harry before Clint Eastwood, and he passed on it. And so he felt, after that movie's success, I mean, Wayne, one of the, the the biggest narcissists in Hollywood history, a guy who was always concerned about his star, and and perhaps at this point as well, feeling the pressure of being a a waning star against, uh, no pun intended, of course, yeah, wait. <laughs> uh, against the, the rise of Clint Eastwood, a man who is representing much of what he had spent. Uh, a career representing for, for God at this point, 40 fucking years. So it's, I think again, for him, a very, yes, a very telling kind of, um, choice to sort of be like, all right, I miss dirty Harry. I can do it. I can still do it. I can be that guy. We're, we're, we're not doing Westerns anymore. We're doing cop films. Let's go. I, I, I still got it, but no, he, he doesn't still, got it in this no. <laughs> particular role. I don't want to co condemn 
late Wayne entirely because yeah, the shootist is like a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, you know? the shootist is is beautiful. It's great. I think it's a wonderful movie, and 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 I think more along the lines of of where he was and what he should have been focused on. Uh, in his career, but there is a strange thing that maybe we'll get into a little bit later in this film of, of there's so much commentary on his virility and, and there's, I think a lot of this, this, uh, this, I'm sure for him kind of insecurity of being like an older out of shape guy who was obsessed with his, his, his look, his presence, his walk, as we discussed before, but, but yeah, you know, it's, it is a, it is an old man, and I think for me that's part of the connection between the two films I saw. Is these are both movies about old men uh, playing with toys, if you think about it, right? For Wayne, sure. it's a it's a it's a Colt Diamondback revolver. It's a it's a car. Uh, it's 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 just it's just movies in general, right? But in the case of Routine Pleasures, it's a bunch of men with model trains, so. So to me, it is a, it's it's old men chasing youth. If you think about both <laughs> films, right? Yes, I, yeah, I, I I see it for sure. I do think it's interesting because I would classify McHugh as more relaxing than than Brannigan. Now having experienced both of them, for me personally, the you know the the location, the way that movie flows. But part of that I think is also my general irritability at British stuff uh, that is kind of like this. I mean, this has that, like, nice, boring James Bond flavor, too. Like, I think that that's kind of built into the way it's shot and and put together. Um, But there is something about... I, I see the angle of, you know... John Wayne being driven around the airport on the back of like one of those carts. Dude, he gets a cart like, at O'Hare. I wrote that down. I was like, I don't right. get a fucking cart at O'Hare, but he gets <laughs> yeah. one. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> hey, you know what though? One thing though, give it up to the movie for it, is like there is l- like maybe five minutes of the movie actually set in Chicago, but that is all Chicago. Uh, it filmed is. In, right? Well, sure. It being is. a you know a conservative icon, uh, he got the approval of Daly. One of, uh, you know, very few films after 68 that got the seal of approval. And, uh, of course, Wayne could broker that deal, you know, between <laughs> between Daly and him. Uh, whereas, yeah, no one else could. But it's it's nice, you know. We get to see uh, a lot of a lot of Chicago flavor early on. I mean, the the film is in both locations very much like spending its time like shooting the cityscape from a rooftop. That's like half the movie is just like yeah, shots of these cityscapes. Like I do find that find that relaxing. I mean, I I, I like knew your angle on the movie going into it, you know, whereas Ryan didn't. So I was sort of geared to be looking for like this idea of Brannigan as a relaxing film. And, you know, just as last week, as we talked about how in visiting hours, there was a lot of like oddly paced, like walking around corridors. Brannigan is a film of like cars pulling up to a location, Mm -hmm. you know, and then like, 
half the movie, I swear to God, is people like getting in and out of cars. Yeah. And there's like so many of those scenes that Wayne like flubs the door a couple times in these <laughs> scenes. And it's just like, ah, shit, we got to move on. You know, like we can't spend all day like worrying if the Duke's going to close the door right. You yeah. know, because every scene is like exterior car pulls up. They get out. I mean, Dude, it's like this, this yeah. movie, this movie I, should be 80 minutes long. Okay. Yes. But it is, it is like two hours and that is because most of the movie is exactly what Marsh described. It is honestly like part of why I find it so chill and so relaxing is because if you really think about it, most of the movie is just people like forced to kind of like usher the Duke around. And again, it's got this sort of like old drunk uncle on vacation vibe. Like when he, you know, first he... He gets picked up by the CPD in the very beginning. He gets ushered to O'Hare Airport. He gets driven through O'Hare Airport. Not He doesn't walk through O'Hare Airport. He flies on a big-ass plane to London. Then he's got some some attractive young member of Scotland Yard to, to then be his sort of personal uh, chauffeur. He's, he's driven to Scotland Yard. Then he's driven all around London for the most part in the back seat of a car, just sort of complaining that he's not getting enough food. <laughs> no one's <laughs> taking him to lunch yet. I mean, like, he's just sort of like a grumpy old dad that's like, wow, you know, London sure is different from when I was here. Last time I was here, it was the war, of course, right? You know? Yeah. It's so, it's so uh, uh, boring that, that yes. I find it, again, <laughs> relaxing. I mean, there's not a lot going on. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, there's some of that there. I will concede. And I think there's like a balance and it, it works depending on the subjective experience with it. I, I was catching on to the fact of the car thing. I picked up on that too, Marsh. I, in fact, I do wish there was like a significant amount more. Like even when he entered the frame in O'Hare on the back of that like cart, I was like, why didn't we get a wide shot of them coming towards the camera for 30 <laughs> seconds of just Wayne sitting on the back of it, maybe having a few lines while it happened. I wish there were more scenes of John Wayne walking around because I did like the speed at which he moved between offices and rooms. I think that was a little bit of a missed opportunity because that would have really keyed into that leisure. But I mean, just overall, right, the angle I saw while watching it, of course, is is the disconnect with however the script might have been pitched, how it got put together, and then even some decisions that were clearly made in post-production of like a radical disconnect between how high energy the music is during supposedly suspenseful moments and the amount of nothing that's happening on screen. Oh, yeah. And I liked that, you know, like... Yeah. Like, that stuff is very funny. Like, one of the biggest set pieces, and we could talk about it later, but, like, just the fact that it was, I'm even calling it a set piece is funny. (laughs) Because the only reason it's suggesting as such is because of the music, not because of what's happening on screen. There's at least two moments where the soundtrack is at, like, full blare. And this is like like a funky 70s soundtrack that does not fit John Wayne or London at all in this moment. And there's at least two moments where this music is blasting and the shot is just a car trying to merge into <laughs> into London traffic that's like basically at a at a standstill, you know? Yes. And like 
I mean, yeah, honing in on those moments is truly incredible because, like, so much of the movie is that. Yeah. And there's a, just, like, a really sort of lack of urgency throughout the movie, especially from... Attenborough and Wayne, you know, they just lumber from <laughs> from one, you know, you know, clue to the next or one office to the next mm-hmm. with no urgency whatsoever. None. Yeah. Now, see, now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. You know? No, I mean, I knew, I understood all of this. I still think the the experience for me was was far from relaxing. But the I, I will, you know, I think that the lack of urgency is important and it is something that connects these films because that is one of the things that is so perfect about routine pleasures in the way we're hanging out with all these guys who are working on their model trains. Because, like, think about what could possibly be something that is the like the least urgent enterprise. That's your, you know, midweek after work club at the community center or wherever it is that they're hosting this stuff. The Del Mar Fairgrounds. The, the, the De- exactly, the Del Mar mm-hmm. Fairgrounds. Like That is a space that is designed to not have urgency. This is where you go to focus on something that gives you pleasure. And you know maybe elements of it might feel routine once it kind of gets put into your regular routine, right? Visiting these, these spaces. But like that is something that's so nice and reflective about this movie. You know, we get to spend time with these people and not feel that that weight of urgent matters. They, they're, they're outside of this this room with everyone. Yeah, they're outside of time and yet when they're in there, time is also like literally different because yeah. they're running on like crazy, fu- like compressed future simulated train time when they're in there right. as well. Oh gosh, you yeah. know? Well, see, that's why for me, I, I would almost <laughs> argue like there's for them like uh, an obsession with time. I mean, it's like an intensive time, especially because uh, with the trains, there is a very particular schedule and there's a lot of discussion about those schedules and the board, the big board, right? And and of course, mm-hmm. like, Goran becomes obsessed with the big... I mean, he even says, like, I'm obsessed with the big board. I love the big board. <laughs> you know, but like, there's a Me conversation too. even at a certain point where they're kind of talking about their their routines and, you know, what they do. And, um, you know, they say that, that basically where their, I guess, excitement comes in, where the drama comes in and something so regimented is that they have these very particular schedules for their trains, but like part of the thrill is adding in variables that could potentially throw off those schedules. So, Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's like, on a certain level, I almost feel there's more urgency in routine pleasures for these guys <laughs> than there are for the Duke and for Attenborough. Like the stakes are actually way higher in in the in the train club than in in London. I mean, even for Garant, like we kind of open with this this drama about him even getting accepted, right? I mean, he's sort of like, I gotta pass. Muster. I've got to. I've got to see the big guy and get his approval for me to even start this project. You know. Somehow I'd managed to convince myself that they were offering me a small-scale epic. 
America under budget and in a shoebox, and that I wasn't about to turn it down. That night, as Corky came down from the hills above Cimarron, I introduced myself and told him I wanted to film them on the job. He took a look at me and said he would talk to the membership. I mean, I, I guess for me, like I see their journey as one that 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 does have a lot more. Um, I would even argue like potential conflict than in the the overly plotted, you know, uh, you know police action film that they're trying to do, you know, like Dirty Harry, right? Like the, mm -hmm. the potential failures of, of everyone involved in Routine Pleasures, they, they certainly hit me a lot harder than, <laughs> than what was going to sure. happen in Brannigan, which was a total inevitability. Like I didn't yeah. know what was ultimately going to happen at the train club. Well, that's definitely like, again, what Garin is imagining as this like Hoxian group, you know, because right. the, despite all of this complicated machinery and timing around them, these guys are like cool as cucumbers, man. They are like, oh, yeah, you know, this isn't their first. I can rodeo. say rodeo, but like <laughs> this isn't this isn't their first, uh, yeah, you know, Tuesday night scheduled delivery or whatever. Ooh. Like, uh, and really, I mean, yeah, that that gets to the heart of it too, which is that the this is a film about process and processes, which is why it even opens with Garen interviewing just like one of the guys, Roger, and he's like, oh yeah, I used to work for General, uh, you know, General Dynamics as a troubleshooter. I worked on missile systems. Uh, and you're like, oh, okay, this is like this guy's mind, you know, or these guys, these like war and post-war guys, you know, from, from America who set up this train in the late 50s, like... And it's all about work and, and process. And, and that's, of course, you know, how Garin ties in, like, Farber uh, and his mm -hmm. paintings and his concepts uh, around work and, and process. Right? Maybe there was some deep dish reason to it all. So much of what Farber was painting had to do these days with work and its rhythms. It had to do with tools, what you do with them and what they do to you how they set down the pace of a day's work. It had to do with the way time stretched on the job. Long, empty expanses in which there was nothing left than to dream a little, to squeeze in a screwy maneuver or two in a fixed schedule in order to survive it. For both Manny and the guys, there was so much routine at the core of any flight of the imagination. Was I, after all, just in search of a metaphor for my own work? It's funny because I, I do agree that perhaps the stakes are higher now that I'm like thinking about it a little bit more. Cause my first rebuttal I was considering right was, well, they're in charge of all of this, you know, they're creating this timetable and, but they're the Lords of it, right? This is like their own universe, their own creation. They are sort of God in this situation. It's for their own pleasure and benefit. But I was thinking about how a couple of weeks ago at the Tacoma, like history museum they had a model train festival yes which was very pleasant it wasn't 
necessarily everything I was hoping for, but we still walked away quite pleased. And they had a lot of different folks come from all over to set up their model trains on different floors of the museum. And it was funny because some were standout. You know, you could tell like, oh, th this club had a lot of resources and their, their tableaus and the way everything was set to scale was just remarkable. Uh, and then there were some more, you know, rinky-dink ones. But you could tell, right, you know, as soothing and as relaxed as everybody was, this was high-stakes shit. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, even whether it was just... You know, making sure everything was going according to plan and like set properly, there was also still this um, fear, right? Because of how much they pro they like value all of these things. They were outside of their community centers. They were away from the fairgrounds. They were in public. You know, I remember there was um, a boy that was leaning on a chair and he kept like trying to get a closer look at the trains and the father was kind of like holding onto the back belt loop of his of his trousers to make sure he didn't just like collapse and sh destroy <laughs> the, the entire setup. And seeing one of those guys, the guys that, you know, those were his trains, you know, he's just like, sir, sir, like every single one of these train cars is worth hundreds of dollars. These are from Europe. You know, like, do, do, get, take your boy, mm -hmm. like, move him back, you know? Um, and it's like, I have to, you have to remember that where there is a culture that's created around this, so the stakes are high. They are treating it extremely seriously. Well, there's also an obsession to what yes. these guys do, and I think Garin gets that as well, that there's like, yeah, this is a very pleasant movie, but there's also like, a, a, I don't want to say darkness, but maybe even like a sadness uh, in the way that it's like, mm. they're so fucking obsessed, mm -hmm. you know? However, Garin sees himself in them as this French guy who's like, I love William Wellman or whatever, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, that's what he jokes. He's like... It was hard now at teaching college kids the glory of being American by letting a Wellman or a Fuller film flicker in front of their faces. He got me a job in the same racket. Both of these are, are examples of, I think, the, the beauty of, of sort of, like entertainment on rails if you think about it you know one very like literally the other one a little bit more figuratively and the sort of like yes again pleasures we get from from sort of like understanding the tracks and seeing things that stay on the tracks and and don't suddenly veer off of that for us um but again i i agree that like these guys like I think Gurin makes the point that, like, if they in any way thought that he wasn't sort of taking them seriously or respecting their process, that he wouldn't have been allowed to shoot there, right? That there is this intense seriousness that these guys, if you called these things toys in any way, like, you'd be bounced out of that room real quick. Oh, of uh, course. And again, there is this this intensity to all these these figures. And I think he picks up on that. I mean, I think he is the guy that is um, the most sort of like nervous throughout this whole film, Garand, because again, if this is an examination of process, like 
he's in search of process for most of this film. I mean, the film is an interrogation, an examination of, of his process as much as it is a look into these guys' processes or Manny Farber's process. And I, I felt, again, the sort of urgency and tension of him like trying to be accepted by either the train club or by Manny Farber. I mean, like much of the film is is him also like sort of going to Manny Farber and, and explaining what he's doing or 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 trying to talk about art, trying to talk about film, and Farber kind of brushing him off or or telling him right. like, hey man, you gotta relax, or critiquing his approach. And then him kind of coming back and being like, okay, what did that mean? How can I get this right? You know? I mean, there's that that point where like Farber even says, like, makes a crack to him about like You lent me half an ear for a while before ushering me out. Just because you're an ex-Marxist, don't feel obliged to start a film with the opening of a toolbox. He offered as a warning. Don't yeah. be that corny. And of course he can't resist then to at a certain point have a shot of one of these guys opening a toolbox, right? But like, you know, he is the one that is, uh, that is like racing against time or, or racing against uh, something that he's worried is going to go off the rails. Yeah, I think he means it when he repeatedly mentions that this is a, a small-scale epic or an investigation into the idea of a small-scale epic, which is then funny considering Brannigan is like a large-scale wheeze or, <laughs> or sigh, <laughs> you know? Um, but I was just thinking again about um, even me mentioning right that they're in charge of these stakes they feel like God in their world and one of the things I was so tickled by very early on in the film that almost reminded me of Terry Gilliam's animation style um, specifically with God as depicted in so much of the Monty Python stuff is these men coming out of the mountains oh yeah these mountains that were set up for these miniatures and then the the floor being lifted up from them of like or just like the rock and their heads popping up it was kind of like whack-a-mole all these guys just like appearing from within the earth but it reminded me of like a Terry Gilliam like cut out of God you know appearing over the horizon and you know Holy Grail or something um, but I I love right like again just this idea of the small scale epic like here are these men that are of this earth of this earth that they have created you know well the 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 leader of the gang i guess the guy who more or less founded a corky uh there is that moment when he's sort of like in the bowels of the train set and he's communicating with you know one of the other engineers or conductors or something and and they're talking about location and he refers to his spot as infinity he says that like when you're down right. here you're in infinity you know you are not of this earth you are uh, somehow in in the multiple, in the possible, in the the limitless. So I think it's very apt to sort of see it that way. And and for these guys who aren't philosophers or theorists or critics, you know, I think it's a very kind of um, it's it's a really sort of like beautiful uh, way of of thinking about it, even if they're not intentionally thinking about it. Yeah, it's just so amazing how nice and playful this movie is while also being so thoughtful you know like i feel like there are so many diversions into ideas about art and heady theory 
that you could chew over and spend a lot of time with, but the resulting piece is so pleasant because it takes such a relaxed approach because it's responding to its subjects too. You know, you've got Manny Farber who just wants to paint and sure he's got ideas, but you know, he doesn't have time for Grin's antics all the time. And then same for these guys who are at work and they're enjoying it, but they're serious about it. Well, sure. And that's, you know, of course the, the connection that Grin makes between, you know, Farber's concept of, of termite art, right? Uh, and that's a big inspiration for Guerin. And, and he's looking at Farber's paintings, which are these very strange, like, tabletop Americana, like, I don't even know how to describe Farber's yeah, they're paintings. They're collages. Yeah, almost, they're yeah. very, very busy. And... I know Guerin thinks of Farber's paintings as this kind of like Deleuzian map, Mm -hmm. you know, that has Mm -hmm. exit and entry points everywhere, right? There's no like totalizing thing that you can latch onto. There's just all these different things firing around. And I think Guerin takes obviously big inspiration from that. I mean, even the way the train guys talk about their pleasure in it, they're talking about difference and repetition. Like, oh yeah, it's fun when we like add one little train to throw the schedule off. Yeah. And like that to them is the most thrilling thing in the world. And that's another connection, I think, to Brannigan in the sense that Brannigan is just like a throwaway genre film that to appreciate it is to simply appreciate it as like, you know, the difference in repetition of these genre films of these cop films of these dirty hairy films and Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't make it great art but necessarily but i think looking at it that way i mean he quote you know he quotes like farber and some of his writing throughout and you know the painting that farber is uh is working on you know during these like sessions which he agreed to be filmed but he didn't want to be filmed but he let him film his paintings uh but the painting is called ryan have a chew on me you know so (laughs) talk about talk about (laughs) chewing things over but again that sort of like nostalgia too like have a chew on me it's like some shit you know some guy would say in a 30s wellman film you know something these train guys would say like corky the the refrigerator repair man who you know every tuesday night uh you know marshals the boys like he's cary grant and only (laughs) angels have wings you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I was trying to take a termite art approach to to glean some some positive vibes or at least pleasures from from Brannigan. I mean, you know, I'm not made of stone. I enjoy watching John Vernon get a massage. Oh, yeah. That scene was nice. You know, if we think about these diversions that the film might take, that's like a pretty funny sequence is is how much time is dedicated to seeing John Vernon get his back all sudsed up. Um, and, you know, I even, I, I particularly love, because it is a funny scene, because he's, he's, he's here to get a massage, you know, they got him, he's all wet. And then these guys come in, wheeling in this big, I don't even know how you would describe it. it. It almost looked like one of those things. Is it one of those things where you would sit in and your head pops out and it's like it's like a sweat machine? Yeah, Is like, that like what it was? a steam chest? No, I, I don't think so. I think it was just some big box on wheels that had that <laughs> yeah. kind of odd shape, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's just like they wheel in this big thing and it's 
it's funny because it's making a ruckus. It's like really loud on the stone floor and it's like bumping across the tiles and John Vernon's pissed off because he's, I felt like John Vernon there, right? I'm trying to relax. Yeah. And here's all this noise that's being made, you know, and they, you know, so what happens is, right, his masseuse goes to like give them a hand. They knock him out. And the, the plan is that they're going to stuff John Vernon into this thing to wheel him out of there. That's how he gets kidnapped. But it's so funny because... They take the time, these like kidnappers, to massage him a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like before they pull out the chloroform and knock him out and then stuff him in this big box. They they still go through the they really like I don't even think they needed to, because Vernon was trusting and had his eyes closed and was just laying and waiting. But they they massage him enough, mm-hmm. and he like, thanks them for it. Yeah, uh, he says it feels good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like again, you know, you talk about like the, the for me the 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 beauty in this experience are all the moments of yeah, just kind of like sort of awkwardness to to all of this that that. I really like zero in on. That's what I sort of really enjoy about it is like the things that, 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 you know, could have been handled more gracefully or, you know, the word was, was used earlier uh, with urgency. And in that particular moment for me in this ability to, to have space to think in this almost like slow, almost like slow cinema approach to an action movie at times, like in that moment where they're, they're, they're going to kidnap him. Right. This should be like a, a, a high octane moment of action, you know, where, yes, they do knock this guy out and then they grab him and they got to get him out of there. Um, they have, as you described it, like also contributed to like really like soaping this guy up. And then there's yeah. a very like awkward, long moment where they're trying to get him in the box. And like he's very slippery, you know, right. but like. Yeah. It's not like a joke, right? Like Hickox is like picking up on the joke of that. But like when you're watching that sequence, like they're really struggling. Like they kind of like grab him and then they like change their grip a couple times. And then they're like, they're trying to get his legs and the legs are slipping out. And like they're struggling for like at least a minute, it seems to me, uh, to like actually like get Vernon in the box. And of course, yeah, the thought in my head was like, why'd you put more soap on him? You were the one who had to grab this now like naked sudsy man and, and get him into this box and get him out of here. But again, like they got all the time in the world, really, you know, they got two hours or or however much time they got all the time they need. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty damn chill. All things considered, you know, one of the pleasures of Brannigan uh, all too brief pleasure is uh, the appearance of Ralph Beaker uh, <laughs> in a particularly bloated moment uh, in his physical his physical being, uh, where he shows up to send you know Wayne uh, to London as like his you know superior in CPD, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, Ralph Beaker, and then he's just not in the movie. <laughs> um, you just think, you know, what was he doing the whole time? Yeah, I mean, like, the movie for me is, like, it's just, again, from my way of, like, looking at it, it is the kind of movie that you really could, like, like you know, the filmmaker we talked about last week, a pitch-up pong, you know, or Joe, as Ryan likes to call him, you know? This is a movie that you could fall asleep in, and... I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I 
knew it. I knew oh, exactly. Yeah, this movie knocked me out. You, you know, again, I, I, you know, I, I hate feeling like Ryan. Like I, I'm, you know, like. You know, having to like really state my case here throughout this, but like you asked for a relaxing movie, you said relaxing vibes, and I was like, this movie will put your ass, it'll knock your ass out. You know, you well, won't even realize. There's a difference it. between boredom and relaxation. Let's be clear. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> some would say yes, but also from my perspective, like, hey, maybe you're you're you said you're tense. You know, you gotta you gotta just like chill. You know, and I knew this would be like like a, a like a big plate of turkey and a glass of red wine you know that's what i knew but but look more red meat than turkey but, but look yeah. i think there's plenty in there to to sort of also like uh, amuse yourself with and and it wasn't my perspective that it would be something that you would walk away from and go man uh uh i'm i'm so glad i saw this movie and my life would be incomplete if i hadn't but at the same time hey you know it was 2 hours that that you weren't troubled, really, at all. You weren't challenged. You weren't pushed, you know? I was troubled. But yes, no, I did walk away from routine pleasures to a feeling like it had been missing from my life. I had been meaning to pop that thing on for so long, and um, boy, oh boy, I'm glad I'm glad you have spent time with it. I was really surprised. I, you know, something that's worth pointing out is um, I can't believe the whole movie wasn't in color. And I'm curious, like, what the decision was there, because it seemed like he was probably just using color film stock the whole time. It, it Most of the film, the footage of the men working on the trains is monochromatic, and it kind of switches into color when things be become alive, when they start, like, moving trains well, around and think, start doing the simulation. I think there's even more to it than that. Again, like, to me, the movie is, is very much, like, grand focusing on the construction, the construction and his process and how he's making the film. And as Marsh already alluded to, like at first he's really excited and he's very excited with, uh, with Manny because he's like, I'm making, I'm making a Wellman picture. I'm making a Howard Hawks thirties picture. And he's describing those guys as characters from these films. So I feel like very consciously he's like, Hey, it's a 1930s film. It should be in black and white. But at a certain point, you know, Farber, again, is sort of like, that sounds corny, you know? <laughs> like, Farber at various points is kind of like telling him to go back to the drawing board on, on what he's describing. And I noticed that at a certain point, it, it does almost seem like, in a playful way, he's kind of being like, oh, yeah, the, the, the Wellman thing, the Hawks thing, the 30s thing was a little little too on the nose. I need to cut that a little bit. And he goes back to shooting in color, you know? I think that he is he is playfully like putting himself out there as this sort of guy that's trying to please people. He's trying to please the train guys and he's also trying to like impress Manny Farber and Farber keeps kind of like rejecting him. I mean, he makes points to say like, he kicked me out of the studio. He ushered me out. He was getting annoyed by me. And I, again, that's why for me, I feel like the black and white is early on. He's like, I got this great scheme. I got this, this, this really cool conceptual way I'm going to make this. And Farber's kind of like, 
really? That's the best you came up with? That's all you got? Like, come on, kid. Like, Well, I think part of that, too, is, you know, in, in those moments, too, which, again, like, you know, whether these exchanges actually happened or not, you know, you love the way Grin tells him because, again, it's like he looks up to Farber so much and Farber's just basically like... A grumpy old man. Yeah, he's just like a grumpy old painter who's like just chilling while Gorin's like asking him all these questions. But there's a great moment where he says, you know, he was painting with some Thelonious Monk playing in the background. He liked it for the way Monk always managed to hit the wrong note. He was busy with details as improbable as the meeting of a naked woman and a train car. Hawks, no fooling, he grumbled. You are all remembrance of things past. But they aren't your things, and this isn't your past. I hated it when he started to insult me in my own language. You know, and Farber getting sort of like ornery about, you know, Gurin sort of like trying to claim these pieces of Americana. And very Mm -hmm. specifically, when the film really switches to color is the moment when uh, Farber agrees to let Gurin film his paintings. And then inside the train station now it's in color and they're doing like these landscape painting kind of inspired shots in miniature. But I think part of that too is again, it's like once Farber like accepts kind of his idea and like, Oh, let me film your paintings. Maybe I'll use those in the film. Then it's like taking a cue from Manny. It's now pop color, you know, like just like Farber's paintings. Right. Right. That I like that read too, that he's desperate to please that he wants to be liked by everyone and he wants to please them. And that's why he keeps like changing his approach and his style. And it takes me back to one of my favorite moments in the film when all the train guys are watching some eight millimeter footage of trains and their rapt attention and their awe and the way they pick it apart and they obsess over it. And he has the line, Gurin has the line saying, could I ever have such control? over an audience. How? Oh, th- this is up at the top of the hill out of, uh, not Lancaster, but, uh, what's the name of that other bird? China Lake. I'm down. British Could I ever have such a hold on an audience? Anyway, we're coming up to the crest and then they go down through Soledad Canyon. And this whole movie is him desperate to to have that effect on someone with what he's seeing. He's watching how rapturously these men are watching this footage of the train and discussing it and thinking about it and contributing so much. And it seems throughout every step of the way, it's just Gurren scratching his head, you know, thinking, can I please these guys like this or even Manny Farber or just the general public who is seeing my movie? Or even my students, yeah. I guess. Well, especially after the rejection of the the films of the Zigavertov group. I mean, going yeah. from, you know, this grand idea that, like, uh, you know, everyone on the left would love their films and, like, no one loved their films. <laughs> like, and, even, and even more so the idea that, that like, a movie, just a movie, could somehow ignite a global revolution right? or, or change the world. I think that was both... 
you know, th- that's what fueled their breakup and, and what sent both of them kind of back to the drawing board creatively. I mean, we covered uh, basically, I think, Godard's film that was very much him kind of coming to terms with that. And, and this film in its own way, even though it's, it's much later in that journey for Garin, has a similar kind of um, has a similar kind of approach of sort of being like, you know, what was I all worked up on back then? What were we all worked up on? Like, look at these guys with the trains. They got it all figured out, you know? And yeah, like going to Farber to sort of find this, this, this affirmation on a certain level that he's not going to get. But I think he's, he's so smart that, that he's kind of creating that interaction as this sort of like you know drama this sort of like very playful kind of like you know I'm going back to one of the masters you know and and he's he's idolizing Farber and Farber's the last guy on the fucking planet that first of all wants to be idolized and second of all that like wants to play those kinds of games you know and I think that's part of the joke that that Garen gets now in the same way that Godard later in his career and especially by the 80s would start to like get the joke of all of this highfalutin, you know, um, ultra serious art house cinema and the idea that movies are going to, you know, like they, they did get lost in the idea that, yeah, movies were going to, to, to fix everything, to push everyone. They were going to elevate audiences everywhere and, 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 and overthrow the system and all that stuff. And it's like, well, pff, no. Now you're hanging out. Now you're hanging out in Del Mar. You know, I mean, and, <laughs> yeah. in that sense, like it does feel like, yeah, he's tr- also seeking, uh, I don't know, a justification for like his existence there as like this former Frenchman. Uh, again, like I said, be, you know, in the the sense, you know, the philosophical sense of becoming American. You know, yeah. like that sort yeah. of journey for him and being like trying to find and appreciate this, you know, this humdrum activity of these train guys and going like, yeah, this isn't so bad, right? You know, like he he is just still wrestling with all that stuff. And this film took several years to make. I mean, this was not a quick shoot. I think he started filming in 80, 81 or something like that. And the film was ultimately released in 1986. So like you also have to wonder if the parts in the film where he's like talking, you know, writing letters to his agent, like, I guess that those aren't like, that's not a construction, you know, he's literally like not finishing this, this movie. Well, I mean, he was even making a different movie. Like there's the conversation with his producer where he tells like the story of how, like I was actually supposed to be making a movie on this. And then I started to sort of bring stuff to my producer. And of course the big joke, even at the ending is then when he's like talking about this movie to his producer, his producer's like, who the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, like, who's like, Corky? Yeah. 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 Like who are these guys, you know? Cause this producer's off in Germany or something like that, you know? And he's got this very disconnected relationship. You know, it, it's almost a sort of like gonzo journalist approach. If you think about it, it's sort of like, yeah. like Hunter S Thompson's fear and loathing in Las Vegas, where he's out there, on assignment, he's supposed to cover a damn motorcycle race in the desert, but then what happens? What does he turn in? This this reflection on, on yes, 
process. And I guess for, for Hunter at the time, it was just doing a lot of drugs and getting lost in, in the casinos of Las Vegas. But I or think Sherman's it's a very similar... March, which was like the same time as routine pleasures. You know, McElwee like not making a documentary on Sherman's March, you know, Cla- exactly. classic shit. I started to send to the outside world messages whose relevance would escape anyone but myself. Namely to my producer Stein in Mainz, Germany. Dear Stein, Chester says that they've modeled Westport on the old Stuttgart station. Send pics of the Stuttgart depot from 1900 onward. P.S. More Deutschmarks, s'il vous plaît. But yeah, that part, you know, that you referenced, Ryan, where they're watching the films, I mean, that's really how Gurin, like, becomes accepted into this group as well, mm-hmm. you know, and that's part of the journey. But it's when he discovers, of course, Corky is also a filmmaker. And he just shoots, like, what I can only describe as, like, yeah, like, uh, experimental films that are just, like, durational train shots, you know? Well, I mean, some shit that, to me, would have looked uh, very at home in uh, Tony Scott's Unstoppable. He's got some, like, wild tracking shots, speeding trains. Yes, this is, like, serious train-chasing filmmaking stuff, and they talk about how, like, yeah, Corky and his wife... Uh, fell in love and like bonded over their love of like chasing trains with these eight millimeter cameras. And so Gurin gets accepted on the condition that he give them the footage because he, you so know, they could make their own movie. <laughs> yeah, so they could make their own movie from it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think the implication being that, you know, that that he is almost looking at them. I, I think he sees this whole process as like very therapeutic on a certain level because for someone who had such lofty ideals about like what cinema could be, what the moving image could be, um, it's like this is him encountering people who, who don't really have that. Certainly not a, a deep like political, uh, you know, I, idea about what these movies are or or what trains are even for that matter. You know, it's not this sort of like deconstruction of of trains. It's it's. It's guys who are interested in motion and movement, in in efficiency, in a, a sort of like ballet of objects moving through space, of choreography, of switching tracks, of getting it right. You know, there's there's these nice little moments even where you know like there's a guy that you know he's he's trying to hit this like switch with his trains and he kind of blows it and it's sort of like oh boy got to reset it you know and it's like it's just the simplicity of that and and the same thing for farber of 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 color and line and shape and and what does it all mean well like it doesn't need to have this sort of like transcendent meaning it is again Sort of like a film we discussed previously as well, the the Quinstrees, the Quinstrees Sun, right? Is that the that's mm-hmm. the Quinstrees? Yeah, right. It's 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 about the journey. It's about again, you know, you you referenced like Deleuze's, um, you know, repetition and difference, which Goren actively does uh, also like reference in this film, and that's it. You know, it's this idea of like repetition, and and you know, for Deleuze, he saw repetition not as this sort of like. Um, this kind of like boring process, but but repetition is ultimately like a creative process, a, a process that was ever changing, ever evolving. And for these guys, again, it's it's that it's finding out that like through these acts, 
which some could see as very simple and very uh, regimented. I mean, like literally putting trains on the same fucking tracks over and over again as this sort of, yes, very boring process, but it isn't. Every time they do it, it's new. Every time they they get together, every Tuesday night, they have changed. They have grown. They are aware of their their time spent together in their lives. You know, there's so many moments of guys even like referencing their past and their aging. You know, there's like one of the old guys mm-hmm. who says like, every time I do this, it gets a little harder to move around, you know? And there's, to me, tremendous weight to that, which, which seems to be just sort of this like throwaway comment about a guy being like, well, I'm a little older now. But the fact is that like that, makes him aware of his body, of his muscles, of his bones, of his movement, and of the time that he has spent with these other people, people who have come and gone. I mean, it's, it is, it is creativity, you know? It is creativity, like, endlessly unfolding in a very, like, structured place, but a place that is constantly, in spite of that structure... Uh, like born again, different. And you know who else has trouble moving? Brannigan. <laughs> <laughs> and, Come on. And one of the great pleasures of Brannigan, perhaps the greatest pleasure for me, speaking personally, is the epic old man brawl. Oh, the yeah. London pub brawl of <laughs> Brannigan. That is... Uh, uh, I guess, again, a set piece, um, which has no necessarily business being in this film. It has really nothing to do with anything. But, of course, at a certain point, Brannigan is in an English pub, and he, for, for reasons I'm still sort of unclear about, like it seemed like it was maybe like an interrogation method, uh, but he punches the, you know, he punches Attenborough because he's sort of pretending to be like this tough guy so he can get in with this this crook. And, yeah. and so he he starts this brawl because then like, you know, a pint gets spilled on some guy's chest. And then next thing you know, all these, you know, these limeys are slugging it out. But oh, it's yeah. like, in, again, it, it is so like slow and sort of like. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. I mean, it's it's also like to me almost like a very cartoonish kind of moment. Like, yeah. Uh, again, you know, if like Wayne was like really interested in in trying to capture that sort of like that new gritty cop shit that Dirty Harry like gave birth to in American cinema in Hollywood and then would be replicated in so many other places. You know, we talked about like Euro crime and the Poliziotesquis of the the seventies, uh, like. This is just such like a misfire that to me, it's so fascinating. I mean, it's almost like, like a like a moment of like Frank Tashlin shit or Jerry Lewis. Like it is that like corny, yeah. and and cartoonish and over the top. It is so ungrounded. There's even just suddenly like a shot of of a woman in a dress like picking up a guy and like throwing him through a table. Like it is that ridiculous. That that for me, I just sort of like go like, wow, this is so unreal this is so phony this is so corny that 
again, it's so soothing to me because it has nothing to do with, with uh, you know, the fall of Saigon. It has nothing to do with, with you know, the descent of America. It's, it's really just such a, a stupid, stupid fucking thing that I find it so charming. Well, as Gurin described Routine Pleasures as being a film about the male imaginary, I mean, certainly Brannigan is also a product of the the male imaginary in in so many ways. I mean, especially the way Wayne just is like hitting hitting on, uh, you know, Thatcher, his his chauffeur slash detective. Or no, she's like vice squad, but she's like detailed to him. Um, A woman like probably like... 30 years younger than him. Oh yeah. And they they <laughs> keep it they keep it PG, but he's a bit of a pig obviously uh in in his uh in his duke way. Uh pretty much about everything, but I do love that he he throws down a boiler maker at the men's like you know the 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 tie required men's club uh and the, you know which little, he little culture clash humor, you Yeah, know? which he describes as a Polish drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Glass of sherry, man. Well, actually, I'd like a water maker. That's a whiskey neat, you'd say, and a beer chaser. Cold if you can find it. So, listen, we can manage that. Good old Polish drink. Mm-hmm. It's funny that they're like going after him the whole time as being like a big Irish piece, piece of shit, you know, like just like, oh, the, it's just like unbelievable, like a man who evokes like so little of Ireland in his presence. And so at little this of point. Chicago, I might add. It, yeah, yeah, no kidding. Oh, yeah. yeah, I did. You know, that culture clash, the one thing I liked, I did enjoy the obviously what's probably what most what many people would remember from this movie in terms of its zingers is when he does order breakfast and one of the british men has to interpret john wayne's breakfast lingo in order to uh, to explain it to the waiter which, in terms of how much grub is going to make it to the table which to be fair isn't all that much of a translation you know if you think about yeah. it cuz he's like eggs over easy uh, he says, eggs over easy, some crispy bacon, and a short stack on the side. And then Attenborough like looks at him for a moment like he just spoke fucking Swahili. And he's like, I think I can help out here. He'd like two eggs lightly fried on either side, uh, some rashers of bacon. And he literally just asked for bacon, you know, but he says rashers of bacon. I think the guy would know that. And then he says some pancakes. I mean, it's not like it was. Right. <laughs> it's not like it was that complicated. Yeah, he said what? But I think that's the funny thing too for me about this movie. Like, as this just really like very like just bad movie, you know, um, is like that they go to great lengths to sort of emphasize like, wow, this is a fish out of water, and it's like you chose two cultures that are are more or less like cousins, you know, that are that are very <laughs> yeah. related to one another, and and it's not that different you know and everything that he's encountering this might as well have been set in new york this might as well have been set in goddamn san francisco aside from the fact that they're driving on the other side of the road you know i mean like there is this moment where like they kind of have a a sort of like a, a tense moment where attenborough's like that gun you can't carry that gun but it's immediately diffused where wayne's just sort of like i'm gonna carry it it's like, okay, well, then he's just walking around London carrying a goddamn gun. Right, you and, know? That, like, and that's that. That's that, you know? But it's like, it's not that 
outrageous, you know? Right. It seems like the film is almost trying to riff on, you know, we mentioned Dirty Harry, but it's also like trying to riff on Coogan's bluff. And I feel like the cultural disconnect is more severe in Coogan's bluff between a man from Arizona heading into the Big Apple as it is from just this Chicago cop like crossing the pond. You know, I did like I like what you said, Marsh, about the the male imaginary. And I think that that is a funny way of reading the the big set piece, quote unquote, set piece we alluded to in the middle of the film where they try to do like an exchange with the money. This is where I fell asleep the first time I watched it. So I'm not the guy to describe what is happening, but it is kind of funny remembering it from this haze because it's a scene that feels like it's almost 90 minutes long. Oh, yeah. And it is, um, it's all shot on these really long lenses as they have all these, you know, all this money in envelopes that they're then, you know, it's like the ransom money for John Vernon and the putting it in this mailbox and then someone's gonna pick up the mail and turns into a quote-unquote chase but so much of it in thinking about the idea of the male imaginary it reminds me of when I was bored when I was young and how you kind of look at the banal around you and you try to piece together some sort of elaborate plot of what could be happening and like the mechanisms but nothing's really actually happening and that's how so much of that sequence feels. It goes on forever. It's just some cars slowly following each other. They're all watching things at a distance when they decide to get moving. There's no hustle. Yeah. It's just, okay, let's, you know, let's, let's go. Let's follow that guy. Essentially, they get like all of Scotland Yard's resources together to watch the mail get delivered. Yes. Like that's yeah. the sequence, you know, like, yeah. there's all this setup and, and multiple camera setups. I mean, they're covering this mail drop in like Piccadilly from like every possible angle with telephoto lenses. I mean, it's, it's so much, again, you talk about like process. It's so much process for like literally watching a couple postmen come and pick up the mail and leave. You know, and like the chase you're describing, like doesn't even really like evolve, right? It's just, it's just that. It's just watching some guys deliver yeah. the mail. And I mean, like in the context of the film, it's because they've been duped and they don't know it. So like it just all, you know, everything just happens normally, like a mail drop would. There's like no, you know, nothing out of the ordinary that happens. But then, like, why did we spend, you know, like eight minutes watching, the <laughs> watching best, them? And, <laughs> honestly, and the I'm serious. It's like it's like ten minutes. And the best part about it, again, like you described, is like this really tense music. But then there's this amazing moment that speaks to all of this, where we cut to Duke in the car, who's been watching this as well, and he just says, "It's too damn simple." Yeah. And it's like, yes, <laughs> it is. That's the. You got it, dude. That's the thesis of the whole thing. He's like the only one who's like confused, but at the same time, it's like, yes, it's too damn simple, you know? Agree. If you took the score off of that scene, if you just redid the sound design and let it be the cityscape and then include that one line of dialogue, it's too simple, it'd actually probably be like a fascinating little film oh, yeah. because it would just be a bunch of non-events and you would be questioning, why am I... Why am I watching all of this stuff unfold? Dude, again, like all the things in this movie that uh, like are just like met with like no real care or concern. uh, 
and and again are just so incredibly like lazy. Uh, we haven't even alluded to the fact that that in addition to this, there's also a subplot from from basically the beginning of the film where the mob in Chicago have put out a hit on Brannigan and they've hired this... Oh, I forgot that even happened. Yeah, they've hired this ultra assassin. Dude. You know, <laughs> Gorman, this pro. In his black Jaguar. Yeah. yeah. And this guy has been shadowing him from O'Hare. I don't know if you noticed this. You probably, probably don't remember this, Ryan, but literally the shot of the Duke like getting on the plane from Chicago... This guy was like 15 feet behind him. When he goes through customs at at Heathrow, Gorman is the next guy in line. Like this guy has been basically 10 steps away from him the entire movie. And there oh, is yeah. again. He's the one who gets his passport stamped and they say business or pleasure. And he says strictly pleasure. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, yeah. And, and truly, because the way he behaves uh, has got to be, you know, up there with, uh, you know, the other film we talked about, Assassination with Charles Bronson. This guy has got to be one of the world's worst assassins and i could do a better job it really brought to mind you know there's a part in routine pleasures when goran is talking about farber's approach to movies you know saying he was never interested uh in in storylines or the big idea you know he liked films where uh the spotlight of culture was nowhere in evidence where the filmmakers could be ornery wasteful stubbornly self-involved you know and like that's Look, exactly what's going on here. This, this whole, like you said, Andy, this whole assassin plotline runs through the whole movie. And this guy does fucking nothing. I mean, it is just unbelievable how little he does. And the schemes he comes up with, again... <laughs> are overly complicated, like prone to failure, when he could at any moment just walk up to this guy and kill him. Shoot him in the back of the head. <laughs> he could do it at any any fucking moment. Dude, my favorite is like the, the, the traps at the apartment that he sets up, dude. Like those are, are incredible. Yeah, and that's... Uh, Dude, when when the toilet blows up, I mean, like that's good. That's good <laughs> shit, Ryan. You got to admit, you oh, know. Because again, the way the setup being like the Duke goes back to his apartment, and this really shitty assassin has like the perfect plan for how to get him. So he rigs up a shotgun uh, and a wire to the doorknob. The idea being, as soon as the Duke opens the door, he's going to get blasted by the shotgun. But of course. The Duke sniffs it out right away because the door handle's like wet yeah. or something. Which again, it's like, what what happened? What'd you get on your hand that you know you left, the, you left like a, a noticeably wet doorknob behind, you know? What a pro. Yeah, did he like slip when setting up the shotgun and his hand fell in the toilet? Yeah. So but but what I love is that like the Duke knows that there's like a trap. And you know, this is some like lady's apartment he's renting. But he doesn't, like, call the bomb squad. You know, he doesn't call the, the Scotland Yard to come in and, like, unrig this thing. He just kicks the door open and triggers the, the, the shotgun, like, blast, like, buckshot through the lady's wall. And then, yes, goes to the toilet and discovers that there's a bomb connected to the toilet. 
So he just grabs the wire and pulls it, blows a hole through this lady's apartment, and he's just kind of like, I told you, this thing was rigged. <laughs> Dude, there's a huge group of people gathering outside his apartment after the shotgun blast, and the film doesn't cut back to them after he blows up this <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And he like, doesn't react to it at all. And like, I knew it. You know, you got to get up early in the morning to outsmart the Duke, you know? You mean he's put another one in there? I mean... Can pay twenty five grand to get me that view. And by the way, <laughs> it's it's kind of sad that this is such a a sad and lackluster assassin. And and I'm about to blow Ryan's mind here. He clearly hated this movie so much that he didn't even probably look into this. But the actor who plays Gorman, his name is Daniel Pilon. He's like a, a French Canadian actor. This guy was apparently like twice like in the top running to take over the role of James Bond. Once in 1968, wow. when Connery left, and then again in 1984. This was almost Bond twice. Wow. Bond That is fascinating, because I will say, Bond yeah, I was I was even about to, I was sensing, and I had a Bond alert prepped, and that was because when, when Wayne does catch the shotgun toilet situation, the booby trap, it did remind me of my favorite um, early Bond repeated scene, like a scene that's in every Bond movie, and that's Sean Connery going in a hotel room for a sequence that probably lasts three or four minutes, intolerably boring, of him just looking for the booby traps. The scene is the same every time. And it's usually just the camera moving side to side very slowly while the bombastic James Bond score is playing because they're like, look, he's looking for secrets. Like, this is, this is Bond. This is so cool. And it's just this guy... Just like in a hotel room, looking under pillows, looking under phones, looking behind the picture frames on the wall. I do love that shit. That is funny, though. Um, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that that, that could have been Bond. Now, I guess we should mention that I, another way that I interpreted the sort of like low stakes of this movie, Andy, because you had told me, you know, here's a film that's really like, it, it doesn't really matter, you know, like who gives a shit yeah. about any of this, yeah. right? Uh, and even more so when it is revealed that the whole kidnapping of John Vernon, right? Because he's, uh, of course, I like that he's running from a Cook County grand jury. It's like he's running from us, you know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. basically. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he's kidnapped and it's this whole thing because it's fucking up Brannigan's extradition. But it turns out the whole thing was cooked up yeah. by John Vernon and his lawyer played by Mel Ferrer, uh, who's been like, you know, faux informing with the police this whole time, but sort of playing a part uh, in the nefarious scheme. And it's really like, okay, yes. So now when you think about it, We've watched John Wayne go to London and fucking vacation and have a Boilermaker and hit on women and, you know, defang traps in his apartment. Start a barroom brawl. Start a barroom brawl, you know, <laughs> like be stalked by this assassin. And then it's like, 
It was all nothing. It was all nothing. Yeah. These guys, it was just them creating an alibi. Yeah. And that's it. And 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 as well, <laughs> like an alibi that that again, like literally makes no sense for for all the time we spent with it because you know the the, the opening with Vernon and Mel Ferrer in London, like they're having this intense conversation where Mel Ferrer is explaining to him how he's going to sneak him out. And it's a totally different scheme. You know, yeah. he doesn't say, I got this great idea. So I'm also then, when you go back after all that, you're like, so why did they have a conversation about like him going to Ecuador or whatever? Because clearly they had this in the works for a long time. Like this was all planned. And then again, you go back to the, the spa if all those guys were in on it as well, I mean, he's hanging out with those guys. John Vernon's hanging out with his kidnappers all the time. They're all in on it together. Why did they have to like chloroform him? Chloroform him, you know? Why didn't he just like, hey, hey, get in the box. We're here for you, you know? <laughs> like this is all part of the scheme that we've all worked up together, right? It completely collapses in on itself, like re-emphasizing the nothingness of this whole thing. Like it, it, it's, it's like a black hole. Yeah, it's like they don't even chloroform him and go through that performance for anybody's benefit because no his thing. original masseuse was knocked out. He's like left in a different part of the room. It almost feels like the whole thing was just designed so that the Gauntlet Boys could be treated to another film that ends with a dummy yep. being thrown out of a window. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah, for sure. And again... Uh, a little dual climax as well. <laughs> yeah, we we certainly love a dual climax. But before we get to that, we should get to more of the climactic moments of routine pleasures. Because the film does build, you know, it is this yeah. meandering, rhizomatic, you know, Gurin reflection. But it really builds up to when it switches to color and when he's been accepted into the group and when he sort of has a clear vision of what this film is, he goes all in documentary American landscape mode and he's shooting these miniatures mm -hmm. and he's shooting these fake, you know, landscapes with the intensity of John Ford, you know, and it really, or even James Benning or even James Benning. Yeah. And it really is just, I could watch that shit all day, all Forever. fucking day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Benning should make a remake of our Arbo with toys. You know, I guess I That's shouldn't say toys. Is. The guys yeah. wouldn't like it, but like, yeah, I could watch a whole feature of that. Cause I loved how we got a little taste in advance of, all the sounds that would accompany it because you've got all the boys at that switchboard where they're playing with like the sound design and they're like, Oh, add some reverb onto that horn, you know, yeah. like, let's see Play how we can recreate this. Probably an air pump, probably a cross compound. I'm like, yeah. sure it would be. No, they had dual. Mm -hmm. Two of them. Okay. Let's try that. Most of those big ones had two uh, air compressors on them, either mounted on the front of a smoke box or on the side. I've got a new tape in uh, the other day from RK down at the store. It's a decade of steam volume two. You know how to sucker a guy in, don't you? <laughs> yep. Nice. Uh, got a tape on it? Yeah, got a cassette and okay. an LP. Uh, let's see, it's 898. 
Okay, set one aside for me. Okay, I'll do so. Yeah, that's that shit is so nice. And then, yeah, when we finally settle in, when the color enters, and we're just all these sounds while watching these miniatures, and then like visiting all these little parts of the town, seeing all the figurines, it is so delightful. And it, yeah, it it's just it kind of reminds me of what we were getting at with how creative these guys are, and how so much of this is an act of creativity and both uh, as expression and even how it feels like filmmaking, right? Like they've set up this arrangement, they have the mise-en-scene, they have the soundscape that they're playing with. There is, there's overlaps there, right? Between their process and the process of filmmaking. And it's funny because when I was at the Tacoma History Museum for this model train festival, those guys, they had on one of them a camera that was attached to the front of one of these trains and it was real low tech. I mean, it seems like they must have bought it in 98 or even just like early 2000s because it was being fed to this monitor that again, looked like it came out of an office from the early 2000s and the connection didn't work very well. This like little webcam that they had on the front of it, it would kind of static It almost looked analog. Like I wonder if they're having it all going directly to tape or something, but they were watching it. They were so hypnotized by it because because it's cinema. You've got the camera on the front of the train cars. It's moving through this landscape. It's just like intricately designed. And I was standing there with these guys, these old guys, and they're watching it. And it's like, I mean, they've been looking at this forever. They never get sick of it. And they were staring at it. And one of them looked over to me and he said, like, if you just wait a little bit, there's a really special moment coming up where you'll be able to see yourself on the camera. Um, And it was just... It was so touching. He knew exactly when it was coming. He's like, just around this bend and past these trees, you'll be able to see you. And I was like, I love you guys. Like, this is so nice. And that's that's how this sequence of the film made me feel. You know, I was experiencing that rush all over again. I mean, again, going back to like, you know, if you think about like Goren and and so much of what he's talking about, especially with like classical Hollywood, um, the point you you've you've raised about, you know, the the sort of similarities between what they're doing and filmmaking, like, you know, you see then that, that almost, you know, like the, the, the cahier argument about classical Hollywood of, of sort of, you know, recognizing certain people and even like in Farber's own criticism of, of sort of looking at classical Hollywood, right. As the epitome of repetition, right. The, the, the epitome of a process that is, uh, as routine as you could possibly make it, you know. Thomas Ince modeled his fucking studio off of Henry Ford's assembly line, for God's sakes, right? But that, in spite of these 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 systems and these studios that were all about repetition, 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 that they could see certain filmmakers who broke through, who, in spite of using very similar structures and processes and 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 equipment and techniques. Uh, were able to add flourishes here or there, uh, you know, add moments that 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 um, emerged from something that seems very, you know, wash, rinse, and and repeat, and and create creative films that that stood out. You know, and would fuel their idea of the the auteur theory ultimately, right? You know, like, hey, they made fucking hundreds of movies back in the the classical Hollywood era, right? But 
But what are the ones that we hold on to today? Where it was the filmmakers who, who got through the, 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 the massive amount of crap that essentially did look, sound, and feel like everything else with the same people and the same cameras and the same technicians, you know? So, so I think for them, like, yeah, this is, this is very much like him sort of looking at these guys in a very similar way to those people, to those filmmakers, to the Hawks, to the Wellman, you know? Absolutely. And I love also, you know, part of Guren's acceptance into the, the model train club is Corky makes a little model of his Citroen. And so we also get a like tour around the miniature America, like with his car. So it's got this like, you know, road trip feeling to it. And I did read in an interview, you know, Guren said, well, you know, the first impulse of any European that moves to America is to make a road movie. And I was like, okay, I'm not doing that, you know, because that's my first impulse. I shouldn't do that, right? Uh, But you get a little bit of that vibe with his car, like, bopping through these landscapes. And then he starts constructing, like, silent film era, sort of, like, slapstick on the rails in miniature uh, with some gags going on. Like, well... Yeah, and I think like Cor- didn't doesn't he make the point too that like Corky started fucking with him and like moving the car around yes. and like I thought I personally felt that it was like Corky who who put like the Citroen like on the tracks on the tracks yeah. broken down <laughs> with like the the figurine like pushing it from behind and it gets hit by the train because he does say. I started to get the feeling that maybe I had overstayed my welcome a little right. bit, and they were trying to trying to <laughs> yeah. encourage me to to sort of wrap it up, you know. But I think that's also what I loved about it was that, you know, he came in with this idea of just sort of like making this film, um, but that he just really started to enjoy being there and just like hanging out. And these guys at a certain point were like, "Look, you were just supposed to come in here and make this film and get out of here. You aren't." like one of us, you know, like we've allowed you to be here and hang out, but ultimately like it doesn't end with them being like, welcome to the, you know, to the train club. It's like, all right, man, like you came, you saw our world, you filmed a bunch of stuff. You've probably filmed for two or three years now. Like get out, you know, move on. I mean, I, 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 I thought, I, I thought that was just so like funny to me that, that, yeah, they were, they yeah. were basically passive aggressively trying to, Get him out the door. I was thinking that so much, that idea of you're not one of us, when they all go outside to see the southbound come by. You know, if Gorin was... Yeah, yeah, if if Gorin was really one of them, like, I could tell they were thinking this. Like, if you were really one of us, your camera would be pointed at that southbound. You wouldn't be watching us watching the southbound. You know, you would be looking over there, my man. Like, that's the, the majesty. That's the beauty. But of course, I'm glad I got to watch those guys watch the Southbound. Yeah. It was very nice. It turned out to be a sort of, uh, you know, lackluster Southbound that particular time. Yeah, well, there's a, there's, you know, like we have feelings about certain auteurs and Grin does as well, these guys have feelings about certain kinds of engines. Oh, yeah. And they draw the line, you know. Yeah. The worst thing you'd be called <laughs> would be a, a, a diesel lover. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, these oh, are God. these are yeah, like the 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 chillest guys ever. I mean, like I loved every minute I I spent with them. Uh, I mean, these guys are so chill. I think my favorite of the of the group is a guy called Ed, uh, who's not actually named Ed. His real name is Nelson. But the fact is, 
like Nelson Ed is the most chill dude that he totally accepted the fact that a guy didn't know his name and kept calling him Ed. So he's like, I just, you just went didn't with it. Correct him. Yeah. yeah. Just went with it. I'm just, I'm just Ed now in here, you know? Yeah. No, they were all treasures. Um, it also like, it also really like messed with me too, because like, I, I think I've told you this story, Marsh, but like, um, you know, where I grew up in, in Elmhurst, Elmhurst had like a, a, a huge model train club like this, like a notorious Western suburb, like train club uh, that guys would come to from from all over the the, the Chicagoland area. Uh, and it was a very like well-known one. And it was like right below this coffee shop that my friends and I used to hang out at. And they would go down there and they would, you know, do this. And right across the street, obviously they chose this location for a reason, were the train tracks, like, dissecting Elmhurst in half. Uh, and so they would go and they would play with their trains and then they would take uh, like folding chairs and they would just set up on the, the train platform and just literally sit there with a cooler watching the trains go by. But of course, you know, I was 16. My friends and I, you know, we were little fucking punks. So we used to terrorize those poor guys. And we would drive by and we would yell at them. We would we would roll down the window and we'd we'd yell things like toot toot motherfuckers. <laughs> you know? And and we would just do laps sometimes, just trying to ruin their chill vibe. So car guys. Yeah. That's how yeah. it felt like with you picking Brannigan this week. I'm sitting here trying to watch routine pleasures and you're shoving Brannigan in my face going choo-choo motherfucker and I'm like yeah 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 I know I, I guess I, I guess honestly I've always had that in me that sometimes I, I like to unwind by riling people up and and maybe subconsciously that's what was going on here I was still trying to yeah. spoil the good time had by all the train club dudes you know yeah I'm just trying to throw softballs to everybody and I got this I got this John Wayne huffing and puffing. Hey, you know what though? I mean, again, you said interpret it as you will and 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 the yeah. Duke, especially like late Duke for me, uh is 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 very, very relaxing. Well, uh these were our chill pills. <laughs> Sorry about the side effects. Yeah. But I had a good time. Hey, I had a great time. Ryan, what about you? Do you have any uh, relaxing films that uh, you think of? I do. I would, time and time again, in a moment of crisis, always find peace, joy, happiness, pleasure, always, with the great Les Blank. I uh, don't even know if I have one I could even recommend, but to me, Les Blank, the documentarian, is is pretty much like the great cinematic optimist. You can almost fault him for it. His films are so pleasant. And that that box set, that Criterion box set, Always for Pleasure, that's just got all of the, all those Les Blank movies. I love that stuff. It's just full of beautiful, beautiful food, beautiful people, beautiful flowers, Great music, good times, good vibes, lovely sunsets on 16 millimeter. You can't go wrong. You've got dry wood. You've got a well-spent life. You got hot pepper. You got the blues according to Lightning Hopkins. You got sprout wings and fly. You got it all. I love Les Blank. Um, that stuff is is so relaxing for me because again, it's just it's pure pleasure. That was his his mode of operating. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's really lovely stuff. 
thinking about him again recently because you got to see a, a print at the Zabriskie Point screening. Very envious. Yes, yes. Um, we had a good time at the Love Inn, you know. But yeah, and yeah. I, I'm very partial, you know, aside from the garlic movie. Uh, I love the Polka movie, you know, because yeah. uh, I married into a Polish family. I'm from Chicago, a big Polish town, you know. So we love... Uh, you know, in heaven, there is no beer. That was actually, you know, my mm-hmm. parents had a jukebox growing up and that was one of the selections was that song in heaven. There is no beer. And I like knew all the words to it when I was like eight, you know, so. have a, have a Brannigan Boilermaker with that Eeks. too. Yeah. Know? Boiler up baby <laughs> for sure. Well, yes. All right. Well, we've, we've taken our medication. Now what's next Marsh? Where do we go from here? What are we looking well, at yeah. next week? Similarly, I'm looking. I'm looking to to go in a change of direction here to lighten the mood, and it was just Valentine's Day, you know. So that was that was on my mind. Kyle and I watched a Sammo Hung movie, which I consider to be a, a romantic act, you know. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I got to get out of my train phase. We gotta we gotta pivot away from all these trains, and so. It just got me thinking, you know, uh, something we haven't done on this on this show yet is talk about romantic comedies. And so uh, bring me your your rom coms, you know, and uh, that's that's all I'll say. That's all I want. This is so funny. We're just we're in sync, my man. I catching the wedding singer this weekend. The first thought I, I said it, I said it to Molly. She could back me up. I'm like, I'm gonna do romantic comedies for my next theme. But I was like thinking about doing like late '90s, like limiting it to a period of three years, you know. But I I feel you. It's time that we we confronted it. As always, you can <laughs> follow us on Twitter at Golf with Movies or send an email to Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com Thanks everyone. It was the same thing that he was saying over and over that it, life, wasn't too big a deal and that it shouldn't be painted like one. But we're all like big players in a Preston Sturgis movie, ready to testify in front of a small-town jury in terms whose relevance would escape everyone but ourselves. But where did that leave me? One day I was looking over some Barney Googles. It was one of the tracks Barbara had sent me to. And it hit me that if there was one trick that I'd learned from him, it was an age-old one. When you want to say where you stand in the landscape, you draw an X, two lines crossing at a single point. It was going to be 10 years. The few friends that I'd left behind in Paris, France, were by now sending puzzled messages. Why Delmar? And from what I heard in their voices, they made it sound like no Alaska. And it seemed to me that the only way to tell them where I really was was to cross Farber's imaginary landscapes with some other one. Top end, I've got your 4026 coming out here shortly. Okay.